Welcome to the Fit to Talk podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Our aim is to provide meaningful, helpful, and accurate information that's easy to digest, mixed in with a little bit of our madness along the way. Yummy, yummy. Uh, today is a special episode. This is one of our expert episodes. Oh, yeah. In these episodes, we invite an expert onto the show and ask them all the things we want to know about them, their profession, and how we can all make our lives better. Everything we want to know. Um, <laughs> so today, our guest has spent 12 years working in the market research industry, specialising in shopper and consumer insight within fast-moving consumer goods. Over the years, he's worked with many of the brands people consume and use on a daily basis, the likes of Kellogg's, Cadbury's, Birdseye, Dove, Lynx, Purcell, just to name a few. Mainly Cadbury's for me, I think. Cadbury's, Birdseye. (laughs) Oh yeah, I love Birdseye. Uh, potato waffles. They're waffly versatile. Uh, <laughs> as well as oh, 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 we'll get to that. <laughs> we will. As well as working with many of the UK supermarkets which we visit on a daily basis. He's also done multiple classes with both of us and somehow he still agreed to do the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's Matt Botham. Hey. Hey. Uh Matt. When's the music coming? Uh Cue the music. That's a question for me. (laughs) Matt, when's the music coming? Uh, Now. Hey, let's have it. (laughs) We'll keep that in. (laughs) That can stay. That can stay. So, Matt, welcome to the Fit2 Talk podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I think it's the first time I've been in a room with both of you together and... Usually it involves one of you shouting at me to do things. I'm, so I'm happy maybe, to continue maybe shouting in the next if you 90 want. Minutes pans out, but uh, yeah, nice to see you both. It's been a while. It's been a while. We are really, really excited to have you in, actually. We are. It is strange to have you in the room with both of us, because I know, um, as Bobby mentioned, you had been to a fair few classes that um, he instructed, and then the same with me. You were there for, for quite a while at a gym that I had worked at, absolutely smashing out some workouts. Yeah, I ended up with you after Sweater, unfortunately, closed. So, yes. Um, oh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, nice to see you both. I, uh, I've enjoyed training with you both. So, uh, so yeah, was was keen or happy to come along. Rephrase that. Happy. Actually, that that wasn't truthful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Begrudging. We'll say no. Uh, it's really, really fascinating. Now, Bubba, you mentioned that Matt is a market research director, mm. and uh, it's taken me a little while to get my head around what what that means. Uh, but uh, I want listeners to know that this is actually. Really, really fascinating. Yeah, I'm pumped for this. Uh, I'm intrigued. I it's one of those things that I think when I spoke to you about it before, Matt, that you were like, I don't think my job's that interesting. And I was like, I don't think you understand quite how interesting it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am, I'm very interested to have you in here. But before we get to what you do as a career, let's learn a little bit about Matt Botham. Let's go back in time. <laughs> uh, tell us how the story of Matt Botham starts. Where were you born and raised? Story of Matt Botham, there's one. Uh, so I'm from North Yorkshire originally, a lovely little place called Skipton, um, gateway to the Dales. Once thought it was the happiest place to live in the UK, I think, or England. Oh. A few years ago. Lovely, lovely town. And you moved. Um, <laughs> and I moved. So I, yeah, I grew up there. Um, and then I went traveling after university, uh, 2009 to 10, came back and basically fell into this job or this industry that I'm still in now when I got back from Australia and moved to London, um, May 2010. So yeah, uh, uh, from Yorkshire originally, but um, been in London the past 12 years. Wow. 
That was a that was a speedy life story. Wrapped up beautifully. Speed reading. Oh, it's speed the story reading. of Matt, Matt Bowden. <laughs> Give you enough to ask some questions. Of. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So what was your experience like in Skipton then? It's the happiest place in the world. Was that your <laughs> experience? Yes. Yeah, uh, Skipton's great. I love it. it. It'll always be home. I've got loads of good friends I've had for life from school. Um, and a lot of us went to university together and then traveling together. Some of them live down here as well. Um my girlfriend's actually bizarrely from a little village there just outside, although we didn't know each other at home. Um, but yeah, great place. You know, it's, it's Yorkshire is a beautiful place, beautiful yeah. part of the world. Um, it's a small little old medieval market town, you know, nice, relatively middle class, lower middle class. It's not overly affluent. It's not overly poor. Um, you know, big castle, loads of um, fields, get with the dales, moors, you know, Shops, cobbled streets, famous market, bit of everything. Lovely place. Sold. I'm moving to Skipton. I, I feel like I'm there. That was that description was <laughs> glorious. Painting a beautiful picture. I know. And they say you mentioned that um, not overly affluent, affluent, not overly poor. Um, they say, don't they, that money doesn't after a certain point doesn't affect your happiness. So it's not perhaps surprising that um, the people there are, are quite happy. Uh, if anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, they say that um, an, an average income up to a certain point does affect your happiness, obviously, because you can't afford to eat and that's stressful or, or you pay your rental bills and all that stuff. So that not having that money does affect your happiness. But after a certain point, the difference between, I can't remember the, the exact figures, but the difference between £80,000 a year and £4 million a year doesn't actually affect your happiness levels. Yeah. Uh, of course, 80 grand a year would be nice, but um, <laughs> yes, but still it's out there. So money does affect happiness, but not not that much. So Skipton, living the dream. Place. You find this when you go back to Yorkshire in a lot of places, people have a different outlook on life and it's a different pace of life and, or it's a different London move. You know, I've lived in London for 12 years. I'm sure you guys know it moves at hundred miles an hour. It's, mm, you know, yeah. always something to do. It, and that's great. You know, yeah. we, we choose to live here. And like that, but it's lovely to go home and just chill out and go for a walk in the countryside and catch up with people and mooch around and, and that kind of thing. And not see a pret a manger on the high street. <laughs> no, <laughs> no offense to pret. These all, opinions are all my own and none of the companies I represent. But well, <laughs> there are prets on every, you know, clearly in London, there are prets everywhere. The place I met you, which was in London Bridge, has three pret a mangers within maybe 200 metres of each other. And that's not including the one in the station. So they're, they're literally three on the same road, just a little bit further down, just because there's so many businesses around that they're like, we'll go, we'll go nuts. There's a famous photo of uh, a place in Newcastle. And I, I went to uni in Newcastle and I love the place. And I'm also a, a, a fairly regular consumer of this outlet. There's a photo of, there's three shops. I can guess uh, what this is already. There's a Greg's. Hey, hey, hey. There's a Bucky's in the middle, and then there's another Greg's next to it. <laughs> and it's amazing. And I've probably been in both of them. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's <laughs> Bobby loves Greg's. I love Greg's. He literally split the country as well. Actually, I, th I think Greg's did it. It was just some funny social media tweet a while ago. It's, they're plotting all their stores, and then a line like, "Where's the North South Divide?" And it's like, "Well, here's all the Greg stores, and then here's all the Pretz where Pretz." <laughs> <laughs> I, I did see that. I did see That's that on social amazing. media. It was brilliant. I haven't seen that one. Find it's it. funny. And oh, totally true. Totally true. There's Greg's everywhere and I love it. So the, the Dales, I've been, I've been. You're, you're talking fresh air and nice tap water. Yeah. Re realistically. <laughs> Arrogate Spa. Yeah. Lovely. It, I know that's ridiculous, but living in London, you don't get either of those you, things. You genuinely notice a difference in air quality actually when, when, when you go home. Yeah. Like yeah. Almost nauseatingly fresh sometimes. Yeah. Especially when you go by the sea and you're like, oh. So when you, were in, when you were in school, did they... 
were they pro, you know, lots of exercise outdoors? Was that something that you did in school? Yeah. So I went to a state boys grammar called Ermistead's, um, quite a famous one. It's about what, 1492, I think it was built, which shows you how much uh, we drummed, drummed wow. the history of the school into us. Really famous uh, school in the area. There's quite a lot of grammar schools in Yorkshire and I'm not going to get into the merits of it. I had a great time at a state grammar, um, you know, not as I say, all, all state, not paid for. Um, grammar schools have loads of pros and cons, but our school was great. There was a boys school in Skipton and a girls school up the road and a couple of comprehensive. So there's lots of families there, lots of kids um, in the area as well, and lots of really good schools, regardless of whether they're comp or um, grammar. But if I can jump did, in, what, what does a grammar school mean? What does that so mean? So it means you basically have to take a test to enter. And that's why a lot of people don't like the idea. And again, I'm, I won't get into the pros and cons of it. All I'll say is I had a really good time at my school, a really good education and a really good um, environment and made, you know, made friends for life there. So, yeah. but yeah, we did that. I guess where I was going with that, it's the legacy of the school. It was an old boarding school and games as we used to call it was really important. And you, you know, as you, when you started in first year, I remember this vividly, even though it was many years ago, um, September term. So coming in towards winter, Monday morning, double games, uh, first thing for all the, you know, year sevens. So you're playing rugby in the, Pouring cold, pouring rain, <laughs> wet, cold, muddy from like September through to December just to break you in essentially to the school. So it was, it was important. That was my experience in Wales, but the whole time. <laughs> so it was, it was, I wouldn't say it was the priority, but actually there's a good bit of sporting heritage of that school as, as well. Um, I was never actually that physically gifted at school and I don't think I am really. So I never played sports per se, but all my mates were either um, rugby players, cricket players, um, some even doing athletics in the summer. So yeah, very kind of long uh, ritual and, and historic tradition of, of the, you know, the sports that the school used to play and continuing that through 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 to the present day, actually, you know, Yorkshire and ca- representing your county and the representing country is a big thing up there for, you know, it's a big, um, big rugby area, big cricket area and lots of stuff as well. Hell yeah. I mean, that's, do you think that is why you, because now I just want listeners to know that you're, you are very active you, know, you do take care of yourself pretty well. Yeah, I think I've always been into that. I, I think I, I've never been that physically gifted from a sporting perspective, but I I think that's probably why I like the gym quite a lot. But it's more the clearly the benefit of exercising and looking after yourself. You feel that for a long time. But I always I've always liked to challenge. So I think probably some expression of. Um, challenging myself physically that I didn't necessarily do loads as a teenager. I do like to work hard now and be able to do things and push myself in the gym and in stuff that I, you know, can do, which is um, not necessarily sporting, but it's still physical, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and we've witnessed you pushing yourself very hard (laughs) in those Gus and Glory classes, I remember. Yeah. I remember. And and I have been there on the days when you're pushing yourself less hard. (laughs) (laughs) Leg days. Yeah. (laughs) The, uh, I'm not. I'm not very. Um, I'm not necessarily very agile. So some of the more agility-based ones in F45 are always always harder. But uh, yeah, I'll give everything a go. If you know what I mean. Yeah, hell yeah, and uh, always bringing bringing that um, energy to that room as well, which is always try. Yeah, the vibes. Always, always bringing the vibes. bring the vibes. It's a good. It's a good part of it that you sort of take for granted that actually group training and group exercise and especially trainers that create that dynamic. That's really, really enjoyable. Um, probably going to classes in London from, it was when I got into spinning actually. Uh, my girlfriend took me spinning sort of the end of 2019. 
And I was always like, I thought, oh, I'll just, I always used to just go to the gym on my own. Didn't really realise that classes were a thing. And then sort of like, oh, I actually really enjoyed that a lot more because the motivation comes from the trainer and then it sort of built from there really. Oh, we'll explore a few different ones and yeah. try some different classes out. That's how I ended up at Sweat It the first time. I was like, oh, quite fancy some of these things now. And and then landed at F45 and a few, of the, you know, One Rebel, all the other stuff and some of the more um, independent ones in the city. So mm. It's amazing, isn't it? You find a lot of people go, okay, I need to go to the gym before work and they rely on perhaps motivation, but uh, the people that can't motivate or, or that their motivation fluctuates, you find that if you're going to a class at 6, 10 in the morning, you probably aren't going to have that motivation in that moment. So when you go to a class, you get there and the trainer is, you know, speaking to you on the moment, from the moment you arrive going, okay, come on, we're going to do this. And they bring you up to their energy level to make you go, oh God, that's harder than I would have worked otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the major benefits I think of classes over other things that are when you're tired, there's nothing to change your energy or you have to dig deep in yourself to, to motivate. Whereas that motivation is outsourced, isn't it? It's like, it's on someone else and they'll bring you up to where they're at and you go, okay, cool. And I'm going to achieve something because of them. And then hopefully you leave, you know, buzzing. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's we've done my job right. <laughs> yeah. And know the people there is important as well. And just even though, you know, you're not spending all the t- class talking, but you have that social interaction and yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's a really rewarding and enjoyable um, format essentially. Shared experience clients. I think um, definitely end up making as you mentioned, friends quite a lot, like yeah. making really firm mm. friends from that stuff. Well, 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 well. That was used a bit. <laughs> yeah, potential awesome. podcast title, well, well, well. <laughs> I'm very glad we didn't choose that. Same. Um, so, I, I actually, I'm going to bring up, because uh, I know that you're, uh, are you vegan? I am, so, I am vegan. I don't like to... Uh, Tell people overly about it. I'm not one of those vegans. The old I'm a vegan, don't worry, they'll tell you. Um, yeah, I am. I, am. Um, I went, uh, my girlfriend and I went vegetarian probably about two and a half years ago, and then vegan, yeah, about two years ago. So, which was interesting. Yeah, how have you found that? Because it's tricky, right? Well, it, it's easier now than it was, but. but it's, it's easier now than it was. As a, as a Yorkshire lad, kind of meat and two veg was always my. Diet, essentially, like in a good way. I've I've always liked to eat good food. I've never really in loads of processed food or takeaways. I've always tried to look after myself. I'm buying some green tea when I was like 15, and yeah. you know, it's kind of always a bit of a wanker, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> buying some green tea as a teenager, but I've, I've always liked to. I wouldn't say I'm, you know, everyone has their little treats and guilty pleasures, but um, yeah, I've always quite liked to eat good food, and you know, younger, early twenties just used to eat loads of chicken and broccoli and trying to exercise that way. And you just lifting weights and whatnot. But yeah, the, the went plant-based a couple of years ago, genuinely really enjoy it. Like honestly, really, really enjoy it. I think from a, from a wellbeing point of view, I noticed the benefits quite quickly. It was just feeling pretty mm. level and, and having sort of consistent energy rather than, you know, peaks and crashes and that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, and from a training point of view, I think I've noticed uh, sort of my recovery was a lot better. I just felt cleaner and on the inside. Mm. That really sort of sounds really weird, but you know what I mean? It just felt felt better. So coupled with training quite well, you know, you're able to just recover and, and you know, not feel overly sore or not feel overly out of breath. So the two have sort of gone hand in hand. So it's hard for me to separate 
what's the effect of doing lots yeah. of training, what's the effect of the diet, but clearly they are important yeah. and inherently linked anyway. But Yeah, but both. It, it, bad programming mm. is going to make you feel sore. You know I mean? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so but alongside that, if you're not fueling your body properly. Yeah. And when you made the transition to being plant-based alongside the training, did you do a lot of kind of research into what you'd need to do? Not really, to be honest. Um, Oreos only. Or, yeah, so yeah, you can start to. Well, the it's more the gateway. you get Oreos are the gateway. There's an accidentally vegan on Instagram, which sort of tells you what, like Oreos on there and some other stuff that um, you can eat. But the, I mean, the, the main catalyst was have you seen Game Changers on Netflix? Um, no, I've not watched it. No, I, I know a lot of people who did watch it. It's, it's actually really, really good. Um, and we watched that sort of Christmas 2019, it would have been, and then thought. You know what? Let's give vegetarianism a go for a little bit. Because um, so I, I used to eat loads of chicken, drink loads of milk, and, and eat loads of eggs. That was sort of the main thing. I think cutting meat out wasn't that hard. Sort of by that that time, um, probably eating far less meat anyway, just on a normal basis. If actually you think about the meals you have during the day, you people won't eat meat at every single meal at all. It's really difficult to do that. So yeah. chopping meat out actually, for me personally wasn't that different. Uh, difficult, I should say. Um, I wasn't a big cheese consumer either. So like th that's the thing that people struggle with, but it's sort of eggs and dairy primarily for me were the two hardest things. So going the transition to vegetarian and then to vegan was much easier. Right. But I didn't necessarily do loads of research into it. Um, game changers as a catalyst. It was more curiosity mm. just thinking, oh, I'll do this for a little bit, see how I feel. And, and I felt good almost instantly. Um, yeah. And then genuinely the other bit is just, I, I enjoy my food a lot more. Because you're eating a different variety of stuff. And I've always, I'm not a chef, but I've always liked good, clean, fresh food, if you know what I mean. I've always tried to eat lots of fruit and veg um, and whatnot. So actually enjoying your food a lot more because you're always kind of experimenting within a, within a, you know, within a certain range. I'm not cooking up gourmet meals every now and my girlfriend's a really good cook. I will add that in. She may not listen back to this, but she may do. Um, yeah, she's a really good cook as well. But yeah, eating lots of variety of stuff and that just is, is enjoyable as well. I think it's really helpful for people to hear uh, from from people who are vegan because or vegetarian uh, that actually you can do that. You can still achieve all your physical goals, whatever it might be. There's, I think there's this old idea that I had when I was growing up, I think because vegan products were hard to come by, that... Um, that, you know, you wouldn't be able to build muscle, which is a complete myth. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, you wouldn't have enough protein. Again, a complete myth. It is trickier and there are, yeah. but completely manageable and very, very healthy to do. Um, so it's fascinating to do. It doesn't necessarily mean it's healthier than anything else, but it is an option. You know, moral things are different considerations, you know, but uh, it's a dietary choice that uh, is great. Yeah. I mean, I think, that, I mean, there's loads of, conflicting theories about either getting off of this or that or whatever. But I think the the thing that I found most um, compelling to continue with it was the general feeling, as I say, of just my energy levels and yeah. feeling just cleaner. And, you know, even when I used to play football after work when I was in the office, just not feeling like completely knackered after the game of football, yeah. actually thinking I've got more in the tank here, my energy's good, I'm got, and it's quicker to recover. And I genuinely put that down to like the dietary change as well. So. I think it's important to go with a lot of these things. It's important to go off of how something feels. Mm. I think that's the same with like training, with diet. If something makes you feel great, mm. then go with it, like embrace that and kind of, yeah, yeah that's what's good. That's what's going to keep you locked into something. Yeah. Like if you, if you go into say some exercise and you're like, oh man, I feel awful. After, it's like it's, it's supposedly good for me, but I feel awful every time I do it. 
you're not, not going to stick with that. Whereas yeah. if you feel great, if you find the, the exercise or the routine that makes you feel great, you are going to stick with that. Well, that is the definition of intuitive eating and yeah. intuitive exercising, isn't it? That I keep harping on about on this podcast now. People are bored of me <laughs> saying intuitive it. eating. But it's that. It's listening to how your body feels. Like if somebody else tried that and doesn't feel great, then don't arbitrarily stick to it. You know, it's something that most, a lot of people have a dairy intolerance and are completely unaware that they have an, a dairy intolerance and are just ignoring those symptoms and, um, you know, don't have whey protein if you have a, a dairy intolerance and so on. Um, I'm boring myself. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on. Let's move on before I talk everyone to death. <laughs> um, so Matt, you said you kind of fell into your career. How did that happen? Literally <laughs> just it. fell. Um, <laughs> came back from, it's a really boring story to be told. I just came back from Australia, been there for a year with, with my mates traveling around. Um, it was time to come back um, and was just looking for graduate jobs. And it sort of goes back to what Stefan said in the intro. Market research is one of the things that you don't, people don't really know exist or what it is. And I, I'd be honest, I didn't. Um, I never really knew what I wanted to do after school other than just, you know, have fun and enjoy things. And, you know, went traveling because of that. Um, just uh, was applying for graduate jobs on one of the graduate sites that was around at the time and uh, got an interview at this place called Kantar. Um, we take on quite a lot of graduates um, and came down to London for the interview and got the job and started with a, started like a month later with a load of probably about 30 of us in total. So, um, Wow, 30? Yeah, Kantar's a really big company. It's one of the big global kind of data insight analytics consulting businesses across the world and split into a few different divisions. My, my The company I used to work at was called World Panel, which is the shop run consumer insight division, if you will. But um, yeah, big, big business, um, take on you know, a lot of, um, a lot of graduates at different times during the year. So yeah, big intake of people there. So suddenly you are part of a, an intake of 30 people and at this massive company in a job that you don't know anything about. Correct. <laughs> so uh, how did you learn? Because I'm assuming you needed to learn pretty quickly. Like, and what was it that you had to learn? Yeah, great question. I think the, I think the reason I did well at it and sticked at the, in the industry is it probably fits well with my... Um, kind of personality in, in terms of being analytical, curious, and like understanding why things happen and, and why people behave that sort of thing. So I did economics and politics at uni and, it, and that's why I sort of like those two things as well. And, you know, understanding, understanding, um, yeah, understanding how things work essentially. Like, you know, kind of politics is everywhere at the moment. There's far too much news, but um, yeah, understanding how, what, how things work, how they affect people. I've always been into that as you know, human behavior, society, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, what, I forgot your question. How, how, what happened? Didn't know anything. Um, what do we have to learn? Um, <laughs> learn things about uh, numbers, you know, fairly good grasp of numbers because it was, it, you know, it was a data led business at the end of the day. You know. That's the level of understanding that I can uh, uh, accept. <laughs> Learn <laughs> things about numbers. Any more detail and I'm lost. No, so, uh, so turning numbers and stats into something meaningful, mm. essentially it. So turning consumer data into something that means something for your clients, you know, helping them make wow. sense of the markets they're in and the industry and general shopping and, and consumer behavior. So from you know, their performance, their size, their scale in the market, whether they've got 10% market share, whether they've got 50% market share, yeah. how many people buy them, for example. So what 
85% of the country will shop in Tesco at least once in a given year. Yeah. Um, those kind of stats. So let's, let's um, simplify this for people listening. Cause uh, if I'm not that smart, so if I was listening, I would probably want some, some assistance. So let's say I've launched a product. I have 10% of the market share with that product. Uh, let's think it's a, it's a new electric toothbrush and um, 10% of all electric toothbrushes being sold are mine. That's a very good launch, I imagine, uh, for a new product. <laughs> that was a very, very good launch very good in launch. that market. Yeah. <laughs> the most successful launch in the world. Uh, and uh, I would employ this company, your company at that point, Kantar, to study who's buying that and why, or what data would they collect? Yes and no. So actually rewind quite a bit. So before you've launched this product whatsoever. So so research comes in a few different forms and a few different stages of the whole life cycle. So you've you've kind of got the bit I described before is about measurement and tracking. So stuff that already exists, you know, how big is Tesco? How big is Coca-Cola? How much do we spend each time we go to the supermarket? All those sorts of stats and measurement. That's good for general understanding, general sizing, you know, business performance, all that kind of thing, you know, shareholders, satisfying them, all that sort of thing. There's a stage before that, if we're talking about, I guess, about innovation or, so think about all the stuff in Tesco. How, that, how does that appear on a shelf? How does it get there? Why is that a good product? So there's a, there's a whole sort of investigative um, world before that. So, okay, you might go, right, I want to launch this electric toothbrush. How big's the market? What are the things that this product needs to deliver for people? What are the targets I should be aiming for in year one? Is 10% great or actually does every product get at least 20% market share in year one? Which mm. no is the answer. <laughs> 10% would be phenomenal. So like setting realistic expectations, but there's a kind of ideation, creation, testing it. So you'd have to make some prototypes test it with the sample consumers. Does it work? Is it good? What they like, dislike about it and really refine it. Then actually to take it to market, you would need data and insight and, um, and sort of a story really to, to sell that into the retailers, assuming you're not selling it direct, but even if you are selling it direct, it's going to be relatively niche. But you know, if you want to get it on the shelves of Tesco, you've got to use data and consumer analytics and whatnot to give them a compelling reason to list your product, mm. tell them the opportunity for them, the opportunity for you. So that's the kind of bit there. And then when you're on shelf, there's a sort of post, um, there's performance tracking again. So, okay, well, I've hit 10% in year one. I need to keep monitoring myself. All of a sudden, if I start declining, right, this is where insight comes, the data becomes powerful again. What's the corrective action I need to do, for example? And oh, there's just there's almost maintenance, right? I'm going to need to promote this product at various points. So probably about a quarter of all the stuff that we buy in the supermarket is on some form of promotion. And that'll differ wildly by category, so by market, essentially. If, if it's fruit and veg is not very promoted at all. Um, confectionery, well, fairly topically because of all the high fat, salt and sugar stuff at the government, but confectionery is quite a highly promoted market sort of impulse thing. So <laughs> promotions, okay, well, how often should I promote this product? Um, should I promote it at all, that sort of stuff. And then there's almost what next? I've launched my one toothbrush. What, we, what else to be What's next? Yeah. You know, right. Yeah, what's the next toothbrush? Or um, sh should I be launching replacement heads in four packs, six packs, whatever? What price should yeah. they be? All that sort of. So the whole sort of journey from how anything appears on the shelf 
insight and analytics and market research is prevalent at all those things, right? From ideation, from having a an idea, going on Dragon's Den or whatever it may be. And when they, you know, they ask those questions, well, how big's the market? What's the opportunity? What's your sales like? Through to keeping that product on the shelf and then the next things you're going to do. So it's kind of a world which I never knew existed and a lot of people don't know exist, but it genuinely is. I wouldn't have been in the industry for so long if it wasn't really fascinating and wasn't always... Well, as you described it, Bobby, it's called FMCG for a reason. It is dynamic, it is fast moving, and it's it's stuff that we all buy and consume and use. Wow, that is genuinely fascinating. That the, the idea, you know, people forget, I think, or I definitely forget when I walk into Tesco's or, or whatever it might be, even if I'm looking at just eggs, that the, the packaging of that egg has been, you know, researched to the ninth degree is that a saying nth yes. degree which nth, one yeah. nth, nth. nth ninth degree that's not a thing. specifically um, the ninth <laughs> to the nth degree um what did i say about not being smart uh, yeah. uh, and that affects our decision making obviously you know you mentioned confectionery or if anybody does shop at tesco and you don't currently have a club card i can officially say you're a moron um, because it's so annoying. It's like have this thing for one pound twenty-five, or if you have a club card, it's forty p. <laughs> like no, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that's that's insane. That's a that's an insane uh, thing to to offer people. Um, so I'd love to talk more about that if you can have yeah. in a second. But um, Bobby, you, you were going to jump in. No, no, I'm just no. I'm still raging about the club card. <laughs> so much club card rage. Um, so that was an amazing overview of really all the points that market research comes into a product's life cycle and how a company would use um, you and your your service, I suppose, as as part of that company. But uh, let's start, start off at the beginning of that with that product research section, where before this product is launched. Um, how do you go about doing that research? Like what methods of market research do you get involved with? Is it sort of, you know, surveys, interviews? Let us know. It's, it's a multi- disciplinary um, industry essentially. And the the methods we will use um, are ultimately dependent on what the client question is. And that sounds a bit vague, but that's the that's the skill in the job. So clients will come with a question or or I need some help or some advice. And and our job as as or my job as a research director is to devise the appropriate methodology to to help them solve their problems and help ultimately help them make better decisions. That's the way I always kind of describe it. It, it's it, the industry is about understanding people and using that information to so businesses can make better decisions mm. about the consumers they're trying to reach or the consumers they've already got or um, or you know new new territories they might want to operate in. So it, it, it honestly will depend. It'll be a mix of everything. So we've got two types of research boils down into two elements: quantitative which is about measurement and tracking kind of big samples. It's, it's essentially the what. So what are the sales or how big is this or what are people um, or how many people do X, Y, Z or. And then you've got qualitative, which is much more about the why. And that's a real broad um, or a real kind of um, generic just differentiation of the two. But you've got the what and the why. And qualitative is typically smaller, in-depth focus group type um, exploratory, investigative things with a few people. And it's non-numerical. I guess that's the difference between the two. Qualitative yeah. is non-numerical, but you're exploring people's attitudes and things like that. So the the best research will often use both of those things because people are complex individuals. We, we, mm. People make 
lots of different decisions on a daily basis and have lots of different lives. And when everyone, you know, all those people that walk in the door of Tesco have got very different needs and and um, wants and and you know methods and means to buy stuff, etc. They've also got loads of stuff in common. So lots of our research, you know, we have a called segmentation. So great bit of bit of um, analysis. You know, any business should have a, a proper segmentation of their customer or their market, I should say, not just their customers because it's also their potential customers. But understanding what makes people similar and what makes people different, mm-hmm. and then build your strategy from that. So. I realize I've navigated away from your question, but it'll be a mix of everything from surveys, um, big long-term tracking studies that a lot of companies do, sort of continuous data sets, um, small ad hoc focus groups. The company I work for at the moment called MMR is a big um, sensorial, um, has a lot of sensorial expertise. So either finding consumers who are sensorially articulate, so we talk a lot about product experience. So I don't know, I've just had this coffee, for example, um, what did I think of the taste? What did I think of the mouthfeel? What are the after effects like? I, I think, think you said it was dark. Too right? bitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not necessarily in a bad way. Yeah. It was quite strong. Mm. You know, is, is it is it um, is it too bitter? Is it too light? Is it, you know, whatever it may be. Mm. Or actually properly food scientists and, and sensory experts and helping clients refine their products on that basis as well. So there's loads of stuff and the methods are vast and varied. And again, that's one thing I really like about the industry. There's not always an answer to, there's not always one single answer to a problem. You've got to use all the tools and, and knowledge and expertise at your disposal. Um, again, ultimately help clients make better decisions and, and invest their money in smarter ways. But the BBC have just announced they're spending 50 million over the next four years on research and a fairly got quite slated by the typical right-wing papers that you might imagine, but it's like, that's completely smart business. Yeah. Not assuming that it's something even as great as the BBC knows everything about its customers or its, its viewers, but actually investing in research to understand how it can better serve the people that use the BBC and what are the problems it, uh, programs it should be making or the audiences it should be representing, you know, finding out what people want. So that that's, you know, great. It's put research kind of front and center of it, but everyone from small brands trying to um, make it in a market through to huge corporations, such as the BBC, um, mm. you know, research is fundamentally important to those decisions that get made every day. So you mentioned there that, you know, essentially it boils down to you help make companies make better decisions for the outcomes they want. Yeah, essentially that. So what kind of outcomes do they want? Are they basically just trying to normally sell a product or a service or whatever it might might be? Is that usually the case? It, I mean, in short, yes, because that's sort of why they exist. But it's, it's not always ruthless capitalism at the heart of that. Yeah. You know, like in this industry, food and drink, everyone has to eat and drink, right? Everyone goes to the supermarket or a shop to buy food and drink. Um, clearly, those companies exist to sell products, but... They, it doesn't mean they just want to sell you stuff you don't want or unhealthy stuff you don't want, you know, quite the opposite. You know, plant-based is hugely exploding in the market right now. Um, health and wellness and, and all the kind of iterations of that. So there's an element of companies have got to be on top of and reacting to the changes that people are going to make and the way demand changes in and of itself. And, and you know, the cost of living crisis, right? That, that people have got to respond to that as well. So it's not just trying to flog stuff to people that they don't want, it's, you know, everyone buys fruit and veg, bread, all those sorts of things, right? So the, the company's going, well, how do I make you my, buy, buy Mr. Warburton's 
by me over Mr. Hobis or by or over the, the private label version. So yeah, it's it's not not purely capitalistic. It's um it's 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 important that you make companies make people's lives easier mm-hmm. as well and, and and offer things that they they do want to buy. Um I think that's really fascinating to hear at the moment because I think marketing sometimes gets a bad rep. People don't like knowing that they're being marketed to, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Like there's this idea that if you had the choice not to see adverts, you would, people choose not to. And actually it's only when those things are sort of thrust on them, like, hey, I've targeted this ad at you on social media, for instance, that people get a little bit funny about it. They're like, oh, they they know what I want. And you're like, Yes, they always have. Like they always have been working away at that that point. From I know that's not quite what you do, but um, the the marketing aspect of it, it is that. But actually, it's really refreshing to hear that that isn't just merciless capitalism. Like a t- like that is you know trying to get you what you want uh, from a really simple perspective. Um, or or just to add that, offer things which are allow you to make better choices. So give you a healthier alternative in this category, or provide a product that um, will meet a specific set of needs with the added benefits in it. or um, so, so tea is a really good example. So during the pandemic, there was a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety. People worried about various different things, health, the job, their family, um, family, friends, et cetera. Um, and some of these products already existed, but there was a real movement towards teas with added benefits, be that vitamin C or, you know, chamomile to help you sleep and all that sort of thing. So, um, as I say, it's about making, it's about providing products so people can make the decisions and, and, you know, things that will make their lives better or, or allow them to function or sleep better or whatever it may be. Yeah. So a lot of research would underpin that, you know, actually, um, those signals are things that the market research would help track. Okay. Well, actually there was seen a load of people buying non-black tea, essentially. Okay, why is that? Well, they're all going for the added vitamins and the added benefits one. Okay, well, that's really interesting. So as a brand or as a retailer, you think, well, we need to do something about that. We need to have the products on the shelves that people want to buy. And yeah, ultimately, instead of our competitor, but that is the nature and the society that we live in. If I've got a choice of two podcasts, you want me to listen to this one, and maybe not this one because I'm on it, but this one instead of (laughs) another one. It's Everything's a bit Mm. competitive, but it's it's not I'm not framing that in a bad way. No, no, it's not always cutthroat and purely capitalistic. I mean, you mentioned the rise and the explosion of sort of uh, vegan or plant-based produce and this as a direct outcome of that, right? If the more people buy that stuff, the more companies are going to produce better and more affordable versions and find ways of creating that that produce that, that... customers want, which I think is really what's happened over the last four or five years. You know, you used to have this really small section of plant-based products and now it's an entire aisle in the Tesco that's near me. You know, it's, um, and that has to be just from, I think from just feedback, right? Like if people buy it, then you know, there's a demand. So the companies then invest in that thing or Tesco then decides to stock more products from different people based on the, that market research. Yeah. And how far in advance are they kind of working with that kind of stuff? Like knowing about plant-based mm. stuff coming along, are, they, are we looking like years into the future as they kind of got that kind of roadmap planned out or is it more of a reactionary thing like on the spot? It'll, it'll differ by business. Um, bigger businesses will have more ability to look further ahead. Smaller businesses, um, well, maybe that's not necessarily true because smaller businesses sometimes can be more agile and, and can, can almost spot something and, and, and appear in the market right. because of that. But I guess fundamentally you need a bit of money to 
do research and you need to have teams of people working their businesses. So the bigger companies, your Procter and Gamble, your Unilevers, whatever, will always, <coughs> excuse me, just have more people and more resources at their disposal to think further ahead. Um, so th- th- there's always an element of reaction. Um, again, that this is this is why the industry and the, the job is interesting. Some stuff is is reactive. Um, some stuff is very much planned. Thinking about you know a lot of companies will be thinking now right um, January twenty twenty three, mm. just mm. continuing that theme. What are we? What are the things we do? We need to take anything new to market. Then, for example, and if they want to be taking stuff to market for January twenty twenty three, lots of the planning and the research and the um, refinement of prototypes and concepts will be happening now because in six months' time, around about September, October, they'll probably have to have conversations with the retailers about getting that product on shelf and on, you know, when Christmas is all stripped back and the mm. retailers are redoing the shelves for January. They'll need to have that stock and have those, um, you know, what we call planograms, essentially, essentially the shelf layout planned. So, so loads, loads and loads of these conversations will be happening now. I'm working with a client on their Christmas menu at the moment. You know, what should that look like? Um, but I'm working with some of the clients on genuinely just exploratory stuff, looking into the future of, you know, if we're going to make a really good product in this market, um, what does that need to be? What do people want from this, this, this market essentially? What don't they like? Mm. And then think about that. So, so it will, it genuinely be a mix of everything. I feel like I've given answers that are neither here nor there to all these questions, but that's, that is genuine. Sometimes it's fully reactive. Mm. Like the reaction to the cost of living crisis at the moment, you know, that stuff's just come out kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. It's obviously a lot, a lot of it is, well, it's not getting to politics, but there's, there's, there's many reasons for that, you know. Um, but that's things that retailers and brands will be having to react to. Mm. And on the other side, innovation generally is a bit more, a bit more planning. I'm convinced that one thing that I've noticed in the market is reactionary. And uh, it's about, once again, about confectionery, about chocolate. I know you work for Cadbury's. Maybe you can give me an answer I used, to this. I didn't, uh, Cadbury's was one of my old Not clients. Not so for Cadbury's, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, that was the wrong phrasing. But uh, maybe two years ago, I think they launched Cadbury's Buttons Orange, maybe but just before the pandemic. I don't know that timeline. And that was the only product. There was Terry's Chocolate Orange and Cadbury's Buttons Orange. right? And they were the only two orange things you could get. Uh, that you could find on a supermarket shelf. And then suddenly these things obviously were incredibly popular. And then there was just everything orange. Mm. Even Galaxy came out with a very, uh, a failed launch of of several of its own products with orange in it, which by the way, in my opinion, (laughs) tasted rank. Uh, They could have used some better market research. Call Matt Botham, Galaxy. Um, uh, (laughs) Please, please. Um, uh, But, then Cadbury obviously then launched Twirl and all this other stuff with Orange in it as well, like a bunch of different products based off the back of that success. And sure, they might have thought that this is possible, but I'm convinced that that, that sold really well. So suddenly you even saw like Easter eggs where the actual egg was orange now. And that just hasn't existed our entire life. And it must be off the back of this one success. And it was rapid in my, I don't know why my knowledge of the confectionery art is so- um, How many so, of them did you buy? <laughs> oh, I kept them in business. Maybe, very, maybe very I am. These, uh, <laughs> they did their market research solely on me. Um, <laughs> bought an orange t-shirt. Yeah. Orange socks. <laughs> All at the same time. And Sunny D. There was an old myth about um, oh, a woman oh, drinking too, too much. Uh, and her orange. skin turning yeah, orange. Yeah, yeah. And this is the advent of like right at the beginning of Facebook, I think it was. And you're like, now nah, that's got to not be true, isn't it? <laughs> it was in the US, wasn't it? It's, it's we, just got to not be true. 
they the stuff they sold in the US wasn't available in the UK. We had to have like a different version of it because yeah. had too many additives <laughs> in. I mean, this is going back to the mid nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure that's true that, that the US version wasn't allowed to be yeah. sold over here. But and now it doesn't exist. I feel like that's come up before. We have to, we have actually spoken about Sunny D on this podcast. We before. love <laughs> Sunny D. Rank if you had it now, but it was so delicious at the time. Yeah. Oh yeah, as a now. kid, it was amazing. It was the elite orange yeah. juice, yeah. Like, wasn't it? I want more. It was the option. Um, just on the on the orange point, that you were exactly right. And there's 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 again, it goes back to Bobby's point about reactive. It's, to an extent, some companies will have to. Uh, you know, there'll be an element of risk whenever you launch a new product. You can never guarantee success. You could do all the quantification, all the analysis in the world that says, right, this is some white space in the market or this is a flavor you don't have in your repertoire or your, your range, I should say. Um, you know, this is the potential opportunity. It could be a million pounds and we reckon you can, you know, your probably market share might be around 10% or whatever it may be. There's always going to be an element of risk in that. It's never guaranteed. Um but then companies will say, okay, well, Sonto's just launched this orange one. But, you know, we need to get in on the act there. So they'll track that and go, okay, that orange thing's doing pretty well. And if they're agile and, and reactive enough, they can do it. Salted caramel was the other one a few years ago, and yeah, everything yeah. was salted caramel. Instantly that, went from caramel to salted caramel. Yeah, but ev- everything on that. And, um, you know, again, another part of the industry is thinking thinking further ahead. So they, I think they're we're expecting maybe spices to be something that comes around this year and a sort of pan-Asian influence coming into food and drink as well, but Ooh. lots and lots of stuff. So again, part of the job is, is, is looking what's happened and using that to inform the, the future. Part I of it is course that. correction. Mm. Part of it is genuine. If you've got the luxury or the, the role in the business, you know, with the guy I work with, our chief ideas officer, his role is, is, you know, advising clients on what we think is next down the line. Well, part of his role is that. And that's it's fascinating. Is his job title Chief Ideas oh, Officer? Good, that's it? a yeah. great title. <laughs> I'm gonna, that's my new title for Fit2. <laughs> <laughs> that can be your role in the we, company. Because we get to decide our own company yeah, yeah, titles. Yeah, yeah. So Chief Ideas Officer. That's great. I don't have enough ideas. So, um, did people predict the salted caramel boom? Was, was, like, thinking back, was that seen as the future? Like, everyone's going to want everything salted caramel. So I wasn't working on a on food at the time I was working on um, categories where salted caramel would not have been an appropriate addition <laughs> to the brand shall we say uh, salted um, caramel toothpaste yeah. I think <laughs> it, was, it was sold I think it was I think people knew it was it was happening yeah it was, it was sort of the own because it was wow. just everywhere it was you know out of home influence like it was in coffees yeah. and everything wasn't it so yeah I think I think people would have been all over that Co- coconut was the other one before you know um, when that yeah, started going yeah. around and everything from Personal care products, toiletries to, yeah. to coconut in your food and drink. So you can sometimes spot these these things coming, and, and you know you don't always have to be the first company to come up with the idea. You can ride the waves mm, if, you, if yeah. you're agile enough and quick enough, um, or you can be the one that, that, that sets the tone and leads the way. That's what I was going to say. The Tesco point about um, so Tesco did a partner partnership, or they I think oh no I can't remember Wicked Kitchen. The, yes, the yeah, 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 yeah. It's a real Tesco have been very progressive recently to give them their dues. Actually, forward thinking and pushing things forward across a lot of market dynamics. And again, some of it is reactive. You can see, and you've got to take that risk. You see the, the tide changing. You can see that the new generations coming through want things that are good for the planet, good for the body, alternatives, all that kind of things. But Tesco have been very progressive in, in the partnership with Wicked Kitchen. They have this thing called Loop, which is um, like packaging recycling service. So it's kind of getting groceries delivered and, and all the refills and re, um, packaging. But a lot of retailers are getting on top of that as well. Asda have had a couple of trial stores, Waitrose have. So many of these, so many of these societal dynamics will always converge on groceries and supermarkets just because it is 
part of what we all do. And that's why it's always fascinating things are changing, you know, positive things to react to or positive things to, to um, act on, mm. not knows always to react to, as well as, so, you know, some of the more negative things that are happening at the moment, the cost of living crisis and all that, and companies, you know, people in boardrooms and up and down the offices making decisions about how to better serve their customers and how to invest wisely and, and all that sort of thing. I find it fascinating. So really, as, as a consumer, you actually do have way more power than you think. It, and the simple thing is the data collected is on what you buy. So you can post whatever you want on Twitter, mm. but if you're still buying the thing that you don't say you support, then they're still going to produce it. Whereas if you actually buy the type of food or, or product, if it's, you know, protein powder or whatever it is that's uh, manufactured in the way that you want it to be and support that, then they will, they will listen. And it's not through the idea of listening to each individual person, but it's like, that research will show up, mm, that behavior, yeah. and that will be expanded upon as long as the company's not rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, things like this take a long time to really set in, like, but we are, we are in the element of generational change. And, and you know, the, the, the biggest group of consumers in the country is still the over 65s. You know, we're an aging population just by number and, and therefore the spending power that they represent. So again, this is, goes back to the segmentation point. Not every consumer behaves the same. We're obviously in a fairly similar demographic here, you know, mm -hmm. three white dudes. What's collective, uh, collective noun for three white men? A podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're obviously in a very, <laughs> obviously in a very similar demographic and got similar attitudes and behaviors, but not everybody behaves like that. But you're exactly right. The, the things that we, <laughs> sorry, I'm out. <laughs> things will, uh, companies have to take notice when people are making different choices about what they buy. And it is a very, you know, there's a lots of complex behavior these days. But there, I think this is when we were talking the other week. Good companies will be also on top of that. So Unilever practice a form of, they call it sustainable capitalism, I think. So they're all about brands that have a purpose and that add things to society and not just, again, flogging stuff to people they don't want. So they own Ben & Jerry's and they've always been very progressive and very equality driven, all that kind of mm. thing. But also all the, you know, Dove doing fantastic things with branding on, um, they had an anti kind of filter touch up element and the sort of no makeup trend and all that. And, and Dove's always been about real women in their adverts and very, uh, you know, way back in the day. Yeah. So Unilever is practicing a real good form of, of sustainable capitalism and um, refills on laundry products and all that kind of element. So yeah. really trying to make the change because that's where the big change comes from as well is companies actually doing stuff because they produce the, the greenhouse gases that, you know, all that, they, they um, uh, farming, whatever it may be, palm oil, all that sort of stuff. P&G as well, go, you know, not the only ones that will add, but P&G also doing similar route, thinking about, you know, plastic was kind of public enemy number one until the coronavirus came along. You know, yeah, yeah. Companies actively, it's all right, you and I trying to use a refill every now and again, but until companies just start putting less plastic in or making better solutions, that's where the big change is going to come from on some of those yeah. things. Same as health. If companies start putting slightly less sugar in something, for example, that's going to have a bigger change than a few of us choosing a better choosing product. If you want, you know, yeah. when we're getting into the realm of societal change now, but... Um, I wanted to ask you, because a couple of things we spoke about when I uh, was chatting to you about this before was the outcome of this research on products specifically. And there was a specific story I mentioned to you and I didn't know if it was true. Um, and I think it's fascinating that uh, I was about cereal boxes. Yeah, we were talking about cereal. I think, and um, this idea, I remember as a kid watching these adverts and, you know, Tony the Tiger, 
uh, being on there. This He's speaking directly to me. It's Tony the Tiger. He's telling me they are great. And he is uh, on that box. I was told that they worked out, market research discovered that obviously cereal boxes are high up on the shelves and it's not the parents who end up choosing the cereal. It's the kids. And the parents just choose the cereal because the kid is, won't shut up about it and will have a, have a crying fit unless they get the cereal they want. And so they ended up having these characters and they're all looking downwards. So, and when you look at the cereal boxes now, have a look at those uh, on whatever it is, Cocoa Pops, Rice Krispies, whatever you're looking at. The only exception is the Kellogg's, um, uh, was it a cockerel? Because it's, mm-hmm. it's not oh, really aimed at kids. Yeah. Um, but all the ones that are aimed at children, the characters are looking downwards so that when the kid is looking up to, towards that shelf, it looks like they're looking directly at them and that that was how uh, they were they were marketed and it was incredibly successful. Is that a total myth or is that real? I don't actually know if that's fully true. I'm trying to recall off the top of my head, but, but what I will say on that is that's where behavioural science starts to blend into this industry as well and, mm. and is a really interesting element of that. So there's, there's again, the, the bits of research I described before, but if you start thinking about behavioural science and how people react to things or certain um, implicit cues and non-verbal cues and all that sort of kind of stuff, um, so the outcome of, of all of this, as I said back at the start, is, is effectively companies are going to invest money in these types of things and it's trying to help them make the right decisions to invest their money in the right way. Um, and it's not always, it's, it, you know, it's it's using, it's an iterative thing, right? So we've tried this campaign and it, and it was quite successful. Okay, well, what are the bits we need to refine for our next campaign? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so cereal boxes is, we we... I think it was as years ago, did some research that, um, not me personally, but when, when, you, when you're in the supermarket, cereals are all facing you. But when you get them back in the house, they usually go on the side and they go in the top of the cupboard and the side's usually quite boring list of ingredients. So how would you make your pack actually a bit more compelling, a bit more exciting? And therefore, when you open the cupboard, that's the thing that stands out and that gets chosen. And therefore, I'll consume that quicker and then I'll go back to the shop and I'll buy that cereal again. And if the product's tasty, I like it as yeah. well. So yeah. all these little bits of hack refinement, product refinement, you know, that's, it's a continual process for I did also see recently some cereals, I can't remember which one of us specifically, have started making their boxes in a different shape so they can fit into your cupboards better. Because I always, find, genius. Yes, yeah, please. I always find like cereal doesn't fit in your cupboards yeah. by and large. So I was like, that is genius. Yes. Like, and the amount of work that must have gone into thinking about it, the amount of work that went into that, having spoken to you just now, like that's amazing. And it's such yeah. a clever idea. And I imagine say, I imagine I'm guessing sales went through the roof on those ones because that's such a like yeah. annoying problem. <laughs> All the best insight always sounds very obvious when you play it backwards. You say yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's human truths, essentially. The, the biggest, um, I got some, I was looking at some numbers this morning from Kantar. So um, the most successful innovation of last year according to Cantal, was Lenore Outdoorable, which is a fabric softener which gives you the, gives your clothes the smell like they were aired outside on a washing line. Oh. Now, I imagine the, the part of the um, rationale for that is not everybody has the out- luxury of outdoor space. So how do we bring that sensation into the home? Mm. Plus, people are still spending much more time at home than they were pre-pandemic. Yeah. So just sort of some quick qualification of that product. Okay, well, actually that's creating a need or catering to a need for people um, who want their clothes to smell good, but haven't mm. got the luxury of a washing line or, or, or don't want time them on the washing line, even if they have that. So simple human truths and insights like that can, can be really powerful and can, can ladder up to success for 
for products. I've got that. I was like, <laughs> I, I haven't seen that, but I would, I would absolutely buy that. I have got it. That sounds. In fact, he used it today. I was like, yeah, it's great because outdoorable sounds a little bit like adorable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh man, that's what I when you first. And said that's what I heard. And you know, PNG, PNG have about what PNG spend about two billion dollars on R and D research development mm. or, or like annually, huge amount. Of money. If people don't know what PNG is, Sorry, Procter Gamble, Gamble. It, it's it's one of those things that when I, I I worked for them years ago, and actually they. Um, they are a massive, one of the biggest companies in the world. Yeah. And actually people, it's one of those unlike things like Unilever that, that quite often people don't know who they are. So and, I mentioned Gillette, kind of things. Venus, um, <laughs> Countless Lenore, perfumes, Ariel, um, or, or Tide, if you've got any US listeners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Febreze, uh, yeah, um, loads of other household products mm. yeah. and whatnot as well. Sorry yeah. to jump in, but it's just no, no, worth no. mentioning that they are. Yeah, massive. huge, huge consumer goods business. Very, very, very successful. They got, People across the globe use their products on a daily basis. There's so much insight to be had from understanding those consumers, be that stuff they do themselves or stuff they use agencies. Yeah. Um, PNG also had the biggest selling products of last year, which was some Febreze gel, I think it was, for the bathroom. And again, oh. think of what people did in 2020. We spent loads more time at home. Yeah. You start to notice your bathroom doesn't smell as nice as you thought it did. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a product to make your bathroom smell good. And that did really well. Amazing. Uh, I think I've probably got that. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, one of the, uh, it's a marketing success. It's got to be one of the most successful ones ever. And it's fitness related is Nike, right? L with yeah. just do it. Because I know you mentioned behavioral science as well. That, that has to be good because that has been part of their branding now for so many years. Uh, the success is, is insane of that one slogan, right? It, it's a, it's a call to action and uh, a subliminal message of like, Oh, every time you see that tick, that phrase might subconsciously come into your head. Just do it. Meaning, buy this thing. Also, it's going, oh, you're going to achieve the goals that you're, you're going to, but also buy this product. Like, that is something that when I remember learning about that when it, uh, about 10 years ago and going, I have bought that, uh, the goods from them with that impetus without being aware that that was why. And that's uh, a wonderful for me, I don't know, it's a wonderful example of the outcome of that. That's brand equity in a nutshell, the ability to command a premium or for people to make those choices based on the strength of that brand alone. And yeah. there's a loads of, you know, I'm not even one of the smartest guys in this industry by a long stretch, but there's a lot of you know, debate and discussion in marketing um, globally about the merits of investing in brand or, you know, should I target different groups of people or target everyone? Should I go after penetration i more people should i try and make people more loyal to me and all these sorts of things but the, unequivocally i think undeniable that investing in brand it's something that takes many many years but it, it pays off if you do it well and you, you have to just continually do that and reinforce it the clever one about nike i mean obviously it's a long long established product that doesn't talk about any of the products they make it's it's just their slogan it's their tagline and and you know nike is a great business has lots and lots of power and and um, ability to do very good adverts and and show sporting success. That you know that's the thing they usually tag on, isn't it? And, and mm. progressive progressive adverts and stuff as well. But um, yeah, just I mean, just do it is great. But it's it's great because it doesn't talk about the product whatsoever. It's 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 again, it taps into the identity, yeah. identity or feeling or emotional motivations for yeah. something like, like Apple, right? So they, they they very rarely talk about their I think they'll mention a, a oh, the, this product has a, this new thing has a 12 megapixel camera. 
great, nobody cares, uh, really. Then they'll tell you- Or understand. Yeah, yeah, that, that, what does yeah. that mean? And then they'll immediately show you the things, the life moments that you'll capture with this camera. Yeah. They which, sell a lifestyle, essentially. Yeah, so they'll, they'll go, hey, we've got this 12 megapixel camera, so you'll be able to catch these incredible moments. And what you attribute to is, I'm going to have these incredible moments and be able to remember them. But really, they're selling the, the feeling of those yeah. things. Mm -hmm. 12 megapixels do, doesn't mean anything to unless people understand. And that's just marketing at it. It's, you know, they've got enough money to research the hell out of what they're doing. Um, Apple's one of the biggest, and Apple and Tesla, I think. People will say Apple don't market or Tesla doesn't market. They're one of the, they're oh. two of the biggest marketing companies in the world. Yeah. Just, yeah. Well, the most um, famous one that they did is um, iPod, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, they just put RIP. iPod. Yeah. Because uh, it's yeah. finally gone. No, That's why it's come up. 20 years. But it's one of the most successful marketing campaigns of all time, which was iPod, a thousand, a thousand songs, songs in your pocket. pocket. Yeah. And that's all they said. That was it. Billboards, everything. Adverts, iPod, a thousand songs in your pocket. That's why you should buy it. They created this ideal of it and it was un unbelievably successful. And, you know, that's, it, as you said earlier, that sounds really obvious and simple, but actually, you know, so much time and effort went into distilling this down into this unbelievable thing. There's nothing like that at the time, but it's the, the I think both those examples are the selling you the possibility. Yeah. Mm. Selling the possibility that you can have that in your pocket or the possibility you can take amazing pictures or have yeah. these amazing experiences. And you'll fill in the gaps for what you want. With regards to that. And um, we talk to a lot of clients about it's not some things you need to focus on the product, but by and large, if you focus on the occasion or the need or the the rationale or the motivation or the benefit. So if you take this product, e.g. the tea, focus on the benefit, you'll feel better, you'll sleep better. Yeah. You know, that's that's where the best marketing and the best success comes from, rather than just this tea contains vitamin C. But fine, so what? Oh, well, you'll feel better. Baraka, you but on a good day. Those clever ah, things like yeah, that. It's yeah. not, this is a- 1,000% of your vitamin C from the day. Effervescent, <laughs> that's know, fact, by the way. Look that yeah, up. Yeah. <laughs> drink. Yeah. No, it's you, you will be running around, jumping around and be the best version of yourself. Yeah. Focus on the benefits. I have one other question, and I wonder if this, this might be outside the scope of your, your job, but um, uh, forgive me if so. But, you know, these companies collecting data, we mentioned Clubcard earlier on to so Tesco, you know, they've made it so that it's a really poor decision for you not to have a Clubcard. It's basically pretty much essential if you shop there, you'll be taking at least a third off your, your shopping cart total in most times you spend. What, how do they use that data? Because then they, ha they can track that me, where I live, who I am, my email address, what I buy, when I buy it, and what my purchasing behaviours are, you know, you might not know for, for Tesco, but can you give us an example of how that companies would use that behaviour? So that that's one version of the quantitative continuous measurement thing I talked about before. So, so Dunhumby, who, who run Tesco's club card business, that's what they do. That's just in Tesco. The company I used to work for Kantar have, um, do that, but at a total market level because they source it directly from people, but that's sourced when you scan your shopping at the till in Tesco and you scan your club card, it registers the transactions. They actually, I was reading about it the other day, coincidentally, Tesco didn't realize at the time how powerful what they were collecting was. This goes back to like the late 80s, early 90s, I think when they first came up with it. It was a revolutionary thing and it started out being a way of couponing, so giving people coupons and they were like, promotions were really a thing in the market back then. They were seen as a bit... Um, you know, um, it took value out and shareholders didn't really like them. 
So they trialed it in a few stores and then the the, the people that they got in, some of the data scientists in, in Dunhumby started realised that this is incredibly powerful. We have building a data set here that we can know know things about our customers, which is really important, and ultimately to serve them better. So it's how will they use that? They'll use it in various different ways. They'll know they'll know kind of what if you keep okay, you usually always buy brand X and you buy it on once every other month, for example. Um whenever you buy that brand, you're also quite likely to stock up on this category, this category, this category. So they'll know kind of what areas of the store, excuse me, you're in at the same time. They might send you coupons through the post with money off that product. They may send you other promotions. Um, they may see if your behavior is common in that actually that's what a lot, a lot of people do. And they think, okay, well, are we, um, we should devote more space to this particular area in store. Or actually, the demand is growing for brand X. So let's have a conversation with that manufacturer. And that manufacturer might go, yeah, yeah, okay, we've got some new innovation coming down the line. So we could put that on their shelf as well. Mm-hmm. They use it in various different ways. Um, they will use that to try and understand you in, in more detail. And again, say, invest their, their money wiser. They might try and understand whether you're into health or scratch cooking or convenience or, or whatever it may be as a result of that. They'll probably want to know what else you do when you're not in Tesco, but that's where they need other agencies that collect other data as well. But Clubcard became incredibly powerful and incredibly powerful asset for them. And the reason Clubcard prices have come about is because this sort of, this cost of living th- crisis is hitting a real climax at the moment, but it's been the past couple of years for people generally since well, since Brexit and since a lot of things going on has been quite tough. The market's been pretty stagnant. Um, the grocery market, I should say. It was only really the coronavirus that gave supermarkets a real boost because that's all we could do. That's all. We couldn't go to the pub. A lot of out-of-home outlets were shut. We were spending way more time at home because we weren't in the office. So supermarkets have had a real benefit from all that, that stuff um, that's been happening to everyone. But Clubcard... Um, they kind of recognised that they needed to offer more value through that. And actually, it's quite a clever way because it uses one of their distinctive assets, which is the club card. Um, It may get a few new people to sign up and they therefore do collect some data from it. But ultimately, it allows them to compete with with the likes of Aldi and Lidl. Mm, So in the last recession, the top four were sort of caught out a bit by... There's a little bit of a myth that Aldi and Lidl did really well in the last recession. They did all right. They didn't have as many stores as they did. But that sort of recessionary period that followed it was when Aldi and Lidl started to expand a bit in this country because they could buy cheaper property as well and, and, and increase their store footprint. But since then, sort of late 2000 and, or, you know, 2010s, as it were, the, the top four have been really, um, you know, f- faced a lot of competition from Aldi and Lidl. So lots of the top four, when I say top four, I mean as the Tesco, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, lots of their activity is basically trying to offer value to customers and give them a reason, well, give them a reason to come into their store, but but not to give them a reason to go elsewhere. Yeah. So they've got club card prices, also got that Aldi price match strategy. So Sainsbury's very explicit merchandising everywhere. But yeah, it's about rewarding their existing customers. And that was the, that was the secret of Clubcard at the time. It wasn't. It was. It it needed. It didn't. It wasn't meant to feel like a reward for future behaviour. It was meant to feel like a reward for something you're already doing. So it it, yeah. it gave people a reason to come back to Tesco over and over again. And was arguably Tesco's got a third of the market. It's twice the size of Sainsbury's, which is its 
which is the number two supermarket in the UK. It's twice the size. Wow. That's huge. Um, Co-op used to be the, the number one retailer in the country just because it had more stores everywhere. And then sort of late 90s, um, Tesco, I probably may get the date wrong there, but yeah, Tesco started to take over. It just got, it wow. has more stores, but it, mm. it, it, it gave people that sense of reward for shopping there. And it's giving stuff back that you have a club card and you, you benefit instantly. You're not getting a yeah. coupon through the post in a few mm. days' time. They also do that, but the club card price is, a, is an instantaneous reward yeah. and benefit because, you know, pricing and value and, and pressures are a front of mind yeah. for a lot of people. I moment, can pay so. £18 for this in Tesco Metro or I can pay £13 right now. Yeah. Um, to take this down, uh, the, it's sort of most maybe negative aspect. You've got, let's say I'm only buying what might be considered less optimal foods, um, things with really, really high fat content or processed foods, et cetera. And uh, this, let's say it's an algorithm that gives you discount coupons through the app. Uh, it's going to promote that those choices because I'm making them. That's uh, do, do they have a moral obligation to try and um, help people make healthier decisions? But personally, I would say yes. I think I think companies do have a moral obligation to do that. Um, people are always going to be impulsive to an extent, um, but yeah, I think that as I said before, like the the biggest change will come from companies making a stand against plastic or against bad diets, etc. That and topical this week, this sort of HFSS high fat salt and sugar thing that the government have been trying to put out for ages. I can understand why they've delayed it a year. Again, given the cost of living crisis. I don't necessarily think it's that um, that wise in some ways, and it's also not. It was effectively going to ban um, like three for twos or buy and get on freeze on on junk food essentially, and also stop them being allowed to be advertised to before a certain time. I think seven pm or nine pm, so kids couldn't see them. But ultimately, that isn't where people are feeling the pinch. It's not that you you know it's it's that's not a main part of your meal. Something that's yeah. Um, certainly in confectionery anyway, that, that HFSS does apply to lots of categories. So on, on actually probably just backtracking a bit on what I said, it, it does, it does, it does mean certain things will be more affordable for people at the moment because, you know, ready meals or whatever, certainly can be high fat in high in fat, salt and sugar. So there is a, there is a, a good sort of short term potential to alleviate some price pressures for someone, but the long term implication for that was essentially to, you know, try and stop childhood obesity and, and the sort of crisis, the health crisis that is looming in the in the background. Um, so, just to rewind to your question, yeah, I think there probably is a moral obligation not to just promote unhealthy stuff. From a consumer point of view, there's a limit to how much unhealthy stuff you will buy in a transaction or in a in a given period, anyway. And, and again, not everyone is making always always making the same decisions and whatnot. So, mm. not every promotion that Tesco or Asda or Sainsbury's whatever put on the shelf is going to sell like hotcakes if you know what I mean um, but yeah it's it's always about offering things that people want to buy at good value prices you know that's sort of the main consideration um, and that has to be across the store yeah. Yeah. that's that's what the retailers need to do across the store to stop you going to the likes of Aldi or Lidl or, or even you know your Waitrose or your Sainsbury's or whatever it mm. might be fascinating and also do hotcakes sell that well <laughs> oh my god it's, it's one yes. of those phrases isn't yes, it <laughs> like I, do you want a cake when it's hot is that uh, is that when you want a cake for me it's one of a Welsh cake 
Oh, or tea cake. cake. Right? Mm. Yeah. Perhaps it's tea cakes. Is that a thing? That's a thing, yeah. isn't it? Tea yeah. cakes. Yeah. Thing. Tea cake. yeah. Savory, though. Uh, savory, but they've got raisins in. Currants. Ah, that's savory. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, uh, this is, might be a tricky question. Do you have the any last advi- one was quite tricky. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I'm only three under the bus. <laughs> no, no, Steph no, no, loves no. to throw those tricky questions. Uh, do you have any advice for people when they're, when they're trying to make decisions in there, is there anything to look out for that they might be able to uh, notice when they're looking at uh, branding that they need to worry about? Or, or is that not really relevant? It it ultimately depends on your own personal circumstances, I guess. You know, everyone everyone's different and everyone has different decisions or, or different means at the time. I think is it, it's Martin Lewis, isn't it? He's always check is like, do I need this? Yeah, money saving so, expert yeah. Martin Lewis. If you if you don't know that website, then so, check it out. You know, if you are if you are feeling the pinch and cost of living, you know, don't don't try and be sucked into impulsive. I probably shouldn't be saying this to, to an extent, but but it's. I don't think all clients. I think generally most companies are fairly moral. They obviously have an awareness to or a, or a need to keep their sales going, but I don't think any of the clients I've worked with over the years are purely exploitative. If you get what I mean? But really reassuring to him personally. Yeah. They yeah. clearly want to sell more stuff, but it's again, it's in it's in a market that's or in markets that people are already active in. So it's kind of yeah. I need to sell. I want my product to be chosen over someone else. I want to make that product better for the people. Yeah. I want them to enjoy it more or to give more benefits to them or whatever so, it may be. Um, so advice to people in branding. I mean, yeah, it will depend on your circumstances. I think you know, try and if, if you if you're thinking, are you buying things for the sake of it? You know, just just kind of ask yourself that. Um, but again, it's a lot of the products we buy because we enjoy them. The main reason people yeah. eat or drink anything is because it's tasty or, you know, and then it's because it, um, whatever the secondary benefits are, whether it's filling or whether it's like health needs or whatever, but taste is always the kind of number one reason people, yeah. people choose things. Mm. Um, yeah, dad, life is about enjoying stuff really. Um, my dad used to say, he was like, three for two might seem like a good deal, but if you weren't going to buy one, then it's not a good deal. You've still lost money. And I was like, I bet I still want it. <laughs> <laughs> and those, those promos work in some categories. They're really, they're really good in some categories. Um, in others, they're not, because the cost of initial entry is already too high. Because you know, yeah. you've got to buy two. So you're already doubling your initial outlay if you don't want any of them. So, so yeah. the, the promotional mix, as we call it, is so different across the markets. So Most of the stuff we buy at the moment is on a, let, let me rephrase that. Most of the promotions in stores are, are what we call um, price reductions or yeah. price cuts, because that's what the, that's the way the wind is blowing at the moment, offering value rather than volume. So I shouldn't market my new electric toothbrush on a three for two. Do people need three? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think you're going to do well with this business, mate. I, I think the product is so bad that you will need to buy three because it will break. <laughs> it's going to break instantly. <laughs> it's two at a time and one. Yeah. Clean both sides of your mouth at once. <laughs> um, with two toothbrushes. I mean, that could be some white space in that market. <laughs> yeah, maybe the double toothbrush. If anyone from Colgate is listening to this, then... Uh, That's a, that is a genius idea. The double toothbrush. <laughs> sure on that one. Um, I was going to say... Yeah, the the the, pro, the promos. There's, there's a lot of value messaging at the moment. Like as Asda have just launched an essentials line. They're sort of what we call value own label range. Um, Morrison's have just made a lot of price cuts. Tesco have had club card prices and price messaging for a while. So again, it, it is looking after customers. It's recognizing people are feeling the pressure. Quite a lot of people are feeling the pressure. Mm. Yes, at some level, it's doing things that make you come into that retail instead of someone else. But 
ultimately is trying to cater for their customers and cater for their needs and offer good value, good, you know, good value prices to, to help people live their lives and, and, you know, not have to worry about that kind of stuff, essentially. Joe, that's been really interesting because it, you always kind of think of these things in a negative way. Yeah. And actually having spoken about it now, I feel much more positive about how these businesses are looking at their customers and how they are treating their customers and what they actually want for their customers. It's not the big, bad supermarkets, not the big, bad companies. It's actually, they do actually care. And that's, I, I feel a lot better about Same. a lot of it from uh, that. It's not, it's not sell at all cost. It's yeah. sell the thing that you want I if you want to buy it. Sorry, I think a lot of brands wouldn't survive if that was the way they operated. Like people aren't stupid. They might buy, we, we are habitual to an extent and we mm. do buy certain things on autopilot and everyone is a little bit impulsive and, and you know, the, the, the advertising industry is great. Some adverts are f- amazing. You know, they use humor, emotion, uh, fun, whatever it may be. You, you know, your John Lewis advert now is such a thing that every at Christmas everyone yeah. looks forward to it. Does it make me go into John Lewis? No, but um, <laughs> that's so true. But that's ultimately what it's aimed yeah. for. Yeah. It's aimed at building John Lewis's brand equity and trying to get you in the store to do your Christmas shopping. Yeah, but people know that. Why would why wouldn't they advertise if they, if they weren't? Yeah. If they didn't want you to come into the store. Mm. So, but people aren't stupid. I think if a if a product is just purely trying to be exploitative then it's probably not going to have many benefits in it anyway like so what is that product's reason for being then therefore if it hasn't got anything that is a sort of um demand signifier then people aren't going to choose it so you can't operate purely on that basis not everything we buy is going to be good for us and i think obviously the nature of this podcast is you know health is on the top but like coca-cola is one of the most chosen brands in the world, so is McDonald's. People know they aren't good for them, but th- that's not a bad thing. You can't be, um, and people aren't consuming them in, under that illusion, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's, you know, they're not, they're not, um, they're not just purely, op- brands that operate purely, I'm, not, I'm just trying to distance from Coca-Cola and McDonald's, I'm not saying they do that, but brands that, but any brand that tries to just purely operate on a, on a capitalistic thing is not going to do well. It yeah. needs to offer something else to consumers because there's so much choice out there and there's so much nuance and, and, and um, availability of other stuff that people can make those choices. Mm. I've just thought of another brand that did a crack in marketing campaign and changed its sort of brand identity was um, M&S. It's not just food. Yeah. Yes, I mean, that's food. So that was actually, that's an interesting one. So that, that only came back on the TV last year. I think it had actually been off for about 10, 12 years. Really? Like everybody knows it because it was so good at the time mm. and just, you know, drew, drew, drizzling chocolate sauce down the screen. Yes, yeah, yeah. Whatever. But yeah, that's so iconic. Actually, I was baffled. I used to work with them and I was baffled when I realised it happened on the TV for so long, but it's so iconic. Yeah, I feel that that's, just, that's been on permanently. You know, not that I watch that much TV, I guess, but... Um... Yeah, that was really effective. Anyway, sorry, I don't really know why I brought that up. <laughs> uh, thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into that world that we knew nothing about. I speak to yeah, that was, that was, no, it was fascinating. It's really interesting to kind of see just how much goes into all of these brands and every single kind of product they launch. And yeah, why, I guess why we buy what we buy mm. and how the choices there for us, like what choices are on the shelves and, yeah. and, and why they're there. Uh, like, just to tag on that though, they can't, the company can't influence, they can't really influence all the decisions that you make really. And that mm. you're, you know, everyone has their own free will as it were to walk in the store and pick something off the shelf. But what they can do is ha- make sure they have products either on the shelf or they are the product that is available for, for the needs and demands in the market. So 
again, lots of lots of demand for plant-based products at the moment, either be those um, slightly more indulgent alternatives to meat or genuine healthy ones. So companies yeah. have a, um, you know, they have a requirement to make sure they've got things that are available. Otherwise they're not going to, they're not going to be chosen and, and, and they won't make any money essentially at the end of the day, which again, it does go, it is the society we live in. People are trying to sell stuff and, and grow their businesses and pay their employees and all that kind of thing. So, but that's that's but that's always been the case, regardless of whatever year it is, if you know what I mean. It's just a really competitive place at the moment. There's lots of new brands, there's lots of changing attitudes and habits and all that kind of stuff. So it's always it's always fascinating. Man, thank you so much. Thank you for coming down and doing the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Giving us your time. Mm. Uh, really hugely <laughs> appreciated. And if you're listening to this which chances are, if you're hearing this, you are listening yeah, to Yeah, well this. done for making it this far. You've made it. We hope you've enjoyed <laughs> High five. this very special expert episode with Matt Botham. Please tell your friends and family about us and also like, share and subscribe for our future episodes. For more information, go to our website, fit-2.co.uk or find us on Instagram at fit2 underscore talk. And if you've got any questions you'd like answered by us, you know what to do. I'm sat there. I've got my phone open. I've got the DMs open. Slide on in. <laughs> I've sent Bobby many. He never replies to me. Uh, thank it's you. just Steph. It's just Steph. <laughs> uh, thank you again for listening. Thanks, Matt, for coming down. And if you like what you've heard, we've been Fit2Talk with me, Stefan. And me, Bobby. And if you didn't enjoy it, we've been Joe Wicks. Peace out. Peace out.